You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you could see it, the, the spelling across the board is completely different. But um, um, <coughs> And, you know, the Book of Common Prayer is a, a central part that people often want to talk about when talking about Anglicanism, and I think we could touch on that, but I'm interested in, in tons of other topics, and um, I'm interested in, in going where you want to go, Andrew, but I thought we could talk about movements in Anglicanism. Yeah. Um, especially where the Advent uh, lies in the sort of Protestant, Reformational, Evangelical, all these words are charged, wing of the church. Um, I'm also really interested in the importance of Scripture, uh, especially for the, the Reformation and uh, Anglicanism at its heart being, you know, the first place where Christians worshipped in the English language and Scripture being translated into mm-hmm. English. We can also talk about um, figures, important figures along the way. Um, yeah, so someone asked me uh, yesterday, no, th- sorry, Thursday, so tell me about Anglicanism over lunch. And I thought, how much time do you have? You know, And she wanted to talk about worship, and I touched on that briefly, um, but said, let's not get uh, distracted by the Book of Common Prayer, although it's important. So any thoughts? Yeah, that, that's a loaded question um, uh, because, in fact, I, I'm part of a conference next year uh, on, on and the question that the conference is asking is, what is Anglicanism? Because there's a lot of confusion over what Anglicanism is uh, right now and in a way that, um, because of historic circumstance, um, most Presbyterians and most Lutherans and most other folks haven't had, had the problem of defining that. Um, but I would say, yeah, it takes a long time to flush it out, but I would say that Anglicanism primarily is um, a particular emphasis on how your theological convictions shape your gatherings. So say your, that again. Your theological convictions, so what you believe, how that, that there's a particular emphasis in Anglicanism that what you believe shapes what you do in the service. And so people will say, well, we're a liturgical church, and that's right. But understanding that the liturgy is actually just a vehicle for a theology, uh, namely the gospel, right? That, that's what it's about. So, um, and this is tricky because um, the Bible is very clear that, um, you know, Paul talks about this in Romans. Um, and you see it uh, certainly throughout the New Testament that Christianity is an audible faith. It's not a visual faith. It's an audible faith. It doesn't mean that visuals don't play into it, but it's primarily a faith that involves hearing. That's why Luther said that the organs of the Christian are not the hands or the feet, but they're the ears. You have to have ears to hear. So a very interesting moment when Jesus is transfigured on the mount with Peter, James, and John there. Uh, you hear a voice from heaven. and I mean, my man is radiant, right? He's, he's manifested in all of his glory, and yet... Um, the voice of the Father from heaven is, this is my well-beloved Son with whom I am well-pleased. Anybody know what he says next? 
listen to him. Which sounds crazy, right? Because you would expect, look at him. Look at him. Uh, and in fact, it was the looking that got Peter in trouble. Uh, and so, um, so there are those, you know, I was sitting at a table for Lenten lunches once, and, uh, and a guy uh, who was Roman Catholic said, you know, I really like the Advent because it's basically the same. And, and I realized he's watching, but he's probably not listening. Um, and so uh, that's really hard because just even as human beings, the way we're wired, I mean, this is the strength of the game Simon says that we played as kids. So if I said, look down, you know, at least three quarters of the room is going to look up with me and do what, what, I, what I do. And so, um, that's, so that's the genius of Anglicanism, but that's also the difficulty of Anglicanism is um, making sure that the gospel is not veiled uh, by what we do, but in fact in, reinforces it. I think, too, talking about Anglicanism, you have to do it from a historical context because a lot of people will say, well, your denomination started when Henry VIII wanted a divorce. And that's not true at all. I mean, I think that you can actually date Anglicanism going back uh, centuries before Henry VIII, uh, even back into uh, the fifth century, where um, Christianity had come uh, to Great Britain, and, uh, and it was all centered around monasteries. So you would have these monasteries that would send missionaries out, uh, and so you'd have a particular allegiance to a monastery. Uh, some people call that Celtic Christianity today or Celtic mission model. Uh, and then uh, not too long after that, um, the Pope in Rome sent a guy named Augustine of Canterbury, not to be confused with St. Augustine from North Africa, uh, sent him to basically, um, Christianity was already there. He was sent to institutionalize and to Romanize Christianity in its form and its governance and in its structure. So it went from monasteries being the core to um, diocese being the core. And there was a <coughs> mighty struggle politically from that point on all the way up that would finally culminate in, in Henry VIII. And what I would say is that um, anybody who tries to hold up Henry VIII is some really glowing, wonderful figure to be emulated. Uh, you should not listen to them. <laughs> he was a terrible man. Uh, he, uh, he, was, he was awful. He lived a good life, suffered with gout uh, for most of his life. Uh, he was, um, you know, if, if um, in some of your lesser Christian moments, if you watch the Tudors, uh, uh, you know, he never looked like that. <laughs> never looked like that. Uh, and, um, and so, and even really up to his death, Henry VIII was an unreformed, uh, he just wanted Roman Catholicism but didn't want the Pope, um, which is actually what every single monarch and city-state wanted in Europe at the time. Uh, the Pope is really over, it had become a political state, and, um, and people, uh, so that's why actually the Reformation politically drug on for so long, and why Luther kept getting called back, because actually these princes and these dukes and these uh, kings really liked what Luther had to say about uh, the Pope's authority in the, the political affairs of the day. And so Henry VIII just did what every other monarch really wanted to do in Europe. Uh, but there was a sort of there was a sense in which uh, Thomas Cranmer and others realized we have to be pragmatic, we have to be pragmatic, which means at times they compromise themselves, uh, like many people. And uh, but they said, you know, let's let's advance the gospel. And of course, upon the death of Henry VIII, 
under Edward VI, his son, in 1547, the floodgates opened and Cranmer and others were finally allowed to, to reform the church in the way that they, they wanted to. So I think at the advent, that history is important because we would, uh, we would hang our hat on that period of time with guys like Cranmer and Ridley and Latimer, uh, who were all burned at the stake uh, in the 1550s under Queen Mary. Um, and then um, a, a group of people that I really didn't think I had that much in common with, uh, the Puritans, because that's a dirty word, isn't it? You know, somebody says you're such a Puritan. Um, this, by the way, to the title, what I said, Reformation and Revival Anglicanism today, this is, I think, important. <coughs> stream throughout a sort of a holy remnant. As yeah, so let me, yeah, let me, let me, let me drop the little blips on the timeline yeah. and then we'll come back and why they're important. So then you got the, you have the Puritans uh, in the uh, 1600s and then it really wasn't until the late 1700s that you had the great evangelical revivals uh, in the Church of England as well as the United States. So the first great awakening under Jonathan Edwards and people like that. Uh, and, uh, and then through the preaching of Whitfield and Wesley and the, the witness of people like John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, among other hymns. Uh, and then um, right on their heels, uh, Charles Simeon, uh, the great rector of Trinity, uh, Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, who had, uh, just as the rector of this college church, had a remarkable impact on the Church of England that is actually still happening today. We can talk about that. And then... Uh, and then there was uh, the Slough of Despond. Um, it was, uh, the church was uh, a mess uh, right after Simeon and, and the death of, of those guys, partly because of the Methodists that left uh, the church and started their own independent chapels. Uh, that, was, that was part of the problem. And you're saying that as a huge loss. It was a huge loss. It was a really, well, actually it's two things. It was the Puritan expulsion and then the, the, the Methodist leaving really, um, I mean, it was, it, you can't overstate the negative consequences of those two things from a worldly perspective anyway. And then, uh, and then it really wasn't until uh, the... Uh, the mid-1800s uh, that the evangelicals started to get their act together again, but that was because of the Tractarians, because of the Anglo-Catholic movement. Yeah, and so, so, they, so I think, you know, you're talking about the sort of evangelical stream on the flip side. You mentioned, you mentioned the Tractarians, the Oxford movement um, of high churchmen. People really in the Star Trek, in, the Tractarians. In, in, interested in, uh, in uh, ritualism and whatnot. But that, that's, it didn't originate in 1800. That's been around all along as sort of the flip side of the equation uh, or confusion about an interest in maybe what's visual, as you said, versus auditory. Yeah, so that's the thing about the Reformation is that it's not a one-time event that, you know, one of the cries was semper reformanda, meaning always reforming, because the church is always wanting to slide back into uh, an accommodation of the culture, um, uh, a, a, a pragmatism that is bad. Um, and so... Uh, that that um, that that has always been the case. So even um, getting rid of the Puritans, that was the motivation. We don't want those people, those kinds of people, in our church. And quite frankly, that was mostly a, a disagreement over church governance. Um, and the, the Puritans were really hard-headed people, and and they should have eased up on some issues. But um, you, you've got that, and then. Um, and then um, during the evangelical revivals under Wesley and Whitfield and others, 
they they were banned from preaching in churches, and so they took their message to preaching out in in the fields. I mean, they would draw such big crowds that uh, you would read every once in a while that. Uh, somebody would uh, would write in their family history that my grandfather was a shouter for Whitfield. What does that mean? Well, what it would mean is the crowds would be so big that they would strategically place individuals in the crowd. Whitfield would preach something, and then they'd yell it back. Now, who knows? Tell us, uh, yeah, tell, who knows what it got to? But they're like, what about coconuts? Um, it's like Monty Python. Yeah, to the yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it could have gotten it, it got dicey, uh, but um, with thousands. I mean, with thousands and thousands. Benjamin Franklin estimated in Philadelphia that thirty thousand, I think, people came out. Right, which Philadelphia in the day that was. Um, I mean, you have to remember, too, that it, I mean, the way that God used it, a little bit like the printing press, um, it, just the providence of the Reformation happening around the printing press and being able to mass produce. So Luther was the first best-selling author in history uh, because of that. And then, uh, especially in colonial America and, um, and even in England during uh, that time, what did you do? I mean, you didn't have anything to do. So, Entertainment. Yeah, church yeah. was. So being an orator was a really big deal, and people would go and just listen to people speak, and you can read guides from that time that would even tell you what your posture ought to be and um, and where you should hold your hands and, and certain terms of phrase that you should use. So it was a real art. So even um, so in uh, Beaufort, South Carolina, where um, I uh, served before here, uh, in uh, the 1830s, there was a big revival. A Presbyterian evangelist, talk about an oxymoron, uh, a Presbyterian evangelist <laughs> uh, came, uh, came through, and um, there was no Presbyterian church there, and so he preached alternately in the Baptist church and in the Episcopal church there. And uh, in a city at the time that only had about 1,500 people living in it, um, 150 men went into the ordained ministry after that revival. Just ash. And so... Did the first missionary bishop to China for Anglicans came out of Beaufort, and he wrote in his memoir that a bunch of them were part of a whist club, which is a card game, and they would go down, and, and he said um, they had all had a lot to drink, and they said, well, what are we going to do now that the cards have ended? And they said, well, let's, let's go hear this preacher that's in town, and he wrote that we went to tear it up, and it tore us up instead. Huh. Uh, and so, um, and out of that whist club, there were six guys. Five uh, went into the ordained ministry. Uh, three out of the five were bishops, and uh, and then one of them was the rector of the church that uh, Stephen T uh, Dudley Ting started. He um, of Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus fame. So, do you know that story? Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, the hymn. Uh, you know that great line: "The arm of flesh will fail you." Uh, it's about a man named Dudley Ting who was an Anglican preacher. And uh, packed it out. His father, Stephen, uh, was a was a famous um, preacher as well. And uh, he had gone out to a farm on the outskirts of Philadelphia, uh, where they were putting people to work that were underemployed or unemployed. And he was surveying. He was looking at a mill and wasn't paying attention. And his sleeve got caught in the the cogs, and it took his arm off. And um, and so uh, his dying words were, "Stand up, stand up for Jesus." And so that line, the arm of flesh will fail you. Um, so, so, but it's been a long time since anyone's written a good hymn about us. Um, <laughs> well, I, I want to, I'm going to necessarily leapfrog over 150 years because you mentioned the right. 1800s. There were great people like J.C. Ryle in the 1800s we could talk about, and then the 20th century, 
figures like John Stott, and now up till today, 2017, and here we are at the Advent, yeah. still an Episcopal church, with all this in the last 500 years, literally, um, in our background, and still a lot of confusion, I think not just in the church, but in, in the world, but also in the church. What does that mean for us today as those who identify as Anglican? Yeah, I think that for a lot of people, well, one thing that we need to understand is North American Anglicanism, I'll throw Canada in, in with us, is, is an anomaly. And that is that Anglicanism primarily is an aesthetic consideration, that, um, that it is primarily about visuals. So, um, you know, the advice given to me or the word given to me when I was ordained by an Episcopal bishop was, Andrew, you can preach heresy from the pulpit in the Episcopal church and no one will say, say a thing. But you start moving the furniture around and they'll tear your rear end up. <laughs> and uh, and that, that's really, that's especially true in, in the United States and Canada because of the influence of the Tractarians. So it becomes more about how you do it. This is like Downton Abbey of Church. Or, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, for, it's, it's form over substance. Yeah. It's form over substance. And so what I found, at least in North American Anglicanism, as the form goes up, the substance goes down. Because if you have no substance, you have to make up for it in some other way. Something to hang your hat on. So, um, and, you know, people are really disappointed when they go to England because they think that every church is like Westminster Abbey on Sundays. And out jumps this guy in a sweater that says, good morning! And, um, and that's, they're like, who's that? That's the guy who's actually leading the service. And, um, and, so, uh, and so it's, I mean, it's not that, and I do think that in some circles, uh, my brothers and sisters over in England, um, that they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, I do think that there needs to be some liturgical guidelines, and so just kind of throwing out all that, I think, does a disservice because it does keep you focused and, and it does uh, remove the element of personality because some of you grew up in churches where really the service hung on who was leading it yeah. and who was preaching. And, um, and I think that that's a dangerous, dangerous thing and, and has not, that, that was why the liturgy was created to, to keep that. So for instance, it was so bad in the Church of England at the time of the Reformation that they wrote uh, two books of homilies and they actually told, with few exceptions, you're not allowed to preach, you have to read one of these sermons to your congregation because we don't trust you. And it wasn't a lot either. Like 40 yeah. Yeah, and so um, and so, so on repeat once a year, basically. Yeah, and they were they're great. They're great sermons uh, to read through. They've been largely lost, but um, to to use. Uh, but but the idea being, um, you know, we we're about quality control, and the liturgy uh, helps helps do that. But again, that we make sure that what we why we we appreciate the liturgy is um, is what it's what it's Same. doing. Yeah, what it's saying rather than. Um, so, for instance, in the 1870s, the American House of Bishops, just to show you how much of a turnaround there's been, uh, in the 1870s, the House of Bishops published a letter to the church that said that um, you can't have crosses in processions, no, uh, no um, incense, no, uh, no, uh, yeah, no colored vestments, no, um, no crossing or bowing or genuflecting. Um, you know, all things that everyone thinks are part and parcel of Anglicanism today um, actually are, are innovations uh, that have taken root more especially in North America than, than anywhere else. And, um, and we may be the first generation of those that walk now 
who don't think a lot about this stuff because we think, you know, but what is, who cares about a cross and a procession? And, you know, isn't that stuff just kind of cufflinks? And to an extent it is. Uh, but, but again, um, taking a look at what we do says almost as much as what we say. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to pause there because we've got um, <coughs> 10, 15 minutes. I'd love to, uh, if, if any of you have any questions about anything that we've said or Anglicanism as a denomination, let's... Well, let me just, let me just say yeah. one more thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah that the Advent is a bit of an anomaly and has been, so it's not like, you know... Um, any of us on staff showed up at the Advent and all of a sudden it, it began to change. I mean, this has been the Advent's witness for decades and decades. And we are a bit of, of a dinosaur. And so sometimes around town and even um, in our denomination, people have this idea that, well, the Advent thinks that they're better than everybody else. And um, in some ways, that's absolutely true. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, That's but, what happens when you have conviction. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that, that because, uh, and I know... You know, it's a hard word to use in our culture right now because it's so politically loaded, but to have evangelical convictions in the best sense of the word, in the Anglican sense of the word, which is uh, we really care a lot about Jesus. We really care a lot about the gospel. We really care a lot about conversion, seeing people actually have an experiential conversion in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we really care about the Bible because of its testimony and witnesses to who Jesus is. And we really care about how we live out our lives and the power of the Holy Spirit. And, um, and regardless of what denomination you're in, uh, if, if you really hold to those things, you're going to get mowed down. Uh, Jesus said as much. Yeah, I wish he hadn't, but he did. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, so, so there are times when, uh, when it's not we're setting ourselves over and against uh, people. But um, I, I really get people upset because I'll have conversations with fellow Episcopalians, and I'll just simply ask the question, well, can you show me in the Bible where you're getting that idea from? And, I mean, they flip out. I mean, this is, and this is where we started <laughs> to come full circle and why I didn't want to do this lesson first with the inquirer's class. Remember we talked about where the, the, the moods of our current society and then also the authority of Scripture and how we can view it uh, as necessary, sufficient, and authoritative in our lives above other things. And I think that, too, that, you know, the Advent's a place where there's there's transparency here. Like, I mean, you know, it, it is, um, it really is a place where you can be uh, yourself and you don't have to get it all together because I think that sort of the extreme side of evangelicalism produces liars. Um, and so people who are like, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm awesome. Uh, when, uh, in fact, uh, I've been reading Second Timothy recently and never realized how discouraging a book that is that actually yeah, yeah. the default position of the Christian is discouragement, uh -huh. and um, and yet how many of our churches don't allow anyone to say, you know what, life stinks right, right. now and it's really hard um, for whatever reason uh, it is. Uh, but that was you know John Newton's great quote. John Newton, the slave trader turned uh, Church of England minister, who wrote Amazing Grace, um, would say often uh, and would say it often to William Wilberforce. Uh, he and John Newton. Uh, almost single-handedly uh, ended the slave trade in the British Empire. And, uh, and Newton said, the two great truths that I've learned in my life is that uh, I am a great sinner, but that Christ is a great Savior. And when you understand the first, you really are able to grasp the second. And I think that that, you know, if 
if we had any, you know, if we wanted to put something in stone at the advent, that would be it. Yeah, that's great. Lisa? Yeah, I was just trying to question earlier. Um, like the nave here, like I think I've heard one of y'all say, like it's Tractarian influence mm -hmm. from that era, uh -huh. the era of the church. Yeah, it's Victorian. Yeah. So, like, I guess I'm curious, like, how how did this church get to where it is now theologically? Was it kind of in that Anglo Catholic stream back in the day, and then over time it? Well, the Episcopal Church, you know, when this building was built, that was du jour. Um, yeah, that's so, who was building churches. So it was like so you didn't really have much of an option. at that time? Is this something that this church has at the Advent, Well, I mean, I, I think it's funny, and I, I reminded us of it last fall, and I think it's worth reminding ourselves of it very often. You look at the Advent, and it's hard to believe that our first place where we first began meeting was a grocery store. We met on barrels and on crates. And... Um, and, uh, and then uh, when we started to grow, we moved into uh, a, be a better environment, a, a dance hall. Uh, <laughs> we moved into a dance hall, which still had like all the streamers and all the stuff from the, uh, from the cabaret or whatever it was they were up to the night before. And, um, and so, and then we had a very simple pine church uh, right where Klingman Commons is before uh, it would burn down. So I think that one actually and you can see this, this is sort of a side thing, but um, if you want to know when a city came into its wealth, look at its architecture. That's when they had the money to spend and who they got the best to do it. And so you can see that around Birmingham of when we actually got it. And so you can see when a church uh, began to develop the means uh, by its architecture. And so actually, if you look at any church built around the same time as the advent, it would you'd be hard pressed to find one that doesn't look look that way. And so you can actually date churches. I mean, the poor churches that that had money in the 1960s. Ooh, uh, that's that's a tough one. Uh, but I, but I wouldn't you know. I, I, but at the same time, I would say that uh, that one of the things about Anglicanism that um, a lot of American Christians um, follow is that. Actually, our physical existence on this earth matters, that there will be a physical resurrection. And so there are churches, like if you go to a church that looks like an airplane hangar, um, that actually is a theological statement that what they're saying is that this world isn't really what matters, heaven is really what matters. Now, on the one hand, I get that. You're right. We want to set our eyes upon Jesus, uh, but at the same time, understanding that uh, we're not just spiritual beings that want to get rid of the physical self or or, or don't take uh, a vested interest in, in the way that, that things uh, look. But, but those things are, are secondary. So, I, I mean, the Advent, if, you know, if we were building a church from scratch today, uh, believe me, even the people who absolutely love what the building looks like realizes that it has impracticalities to it. I mean, some of you have soldiered on through our sound system changes. That has been going on since the 1980s. I mean, literally, we've struggled with our sound system, and it has everything to do with the type of building that we're in. Um, and so the other thing I would say, too, about buildings is you can't let them dictate your mission. So actually, when we built that building, the um, Birmingham was not that large, and we only had about, I don't know, 250, 300 members yeah. when we built that building. Uh, and it seats, I mean, we can get almost 1,000 in on Christmas Eve. So... That would obviously, with an eye toward, we're going to grow, and so at the same time, it would be like us building a church that seats, 
you know, 20,000 right now, which would be a fairly large expectation. Um, George Whitfield would be perfect. George Whitfield could do it. Uh, you know, he was cross-eyed too. That's a, that's that's worth noting. Um, so if you look at paintings of him, you think he looks funny. It's because he looks funny. And uh, King of the No Look Pass. So um, the other thing is that too that if we if we think oh well the church is packed we ought to feel really good about our ministry um, that that's a falsehood that lets the building dictate the mission like why. Why wouldn't we want to see more people come to know the Lord and, and, and reach out to them and minister to them than just what our building can hold? Another question? We have time for one more, probably, maybe two. I have a question. Yeah. Um, because the Advent was just a parish church until the early 80s. Mm -hmm. Can y'all talk about being a cathedral? Because, I mean, even growing up Episcopalian, that's just something that... I mean, it doesn't really mean anything to me in coming to church here, but obviously that that's in our name and that you're a canon and you're the dean. That I, people that gives people a certain perception that I feel like maybe isn't always true. So if you could just generally speak to that. Yeah, bad decisions were made during the disco era, and uh, and so in 1982 we're coming out of it. Actually, it wasn't a bad. It was very controversial at the time. Uh, again, the Advent has always been one of those churches that. I mean, I've got correspondence from the late 1800s between the Advent and the diocese basically going hammer and tongs about stuff. And, um, but it was, oh, I can tell you about that another time, that's not important. So um, we, we became a cathedral and that, um, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, I guess it means something to people who it means something to, but you know, someone once asked Lauren, my wife, what does it mean that Andrew's the very reverend? And she said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> She's right. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. So um, it, it does mean that we are, um, it does give us a sphere of influence because for Episcopalians who are really into that kind of stuff, um, so it's, it's sort of like, ooh, the, the, the dean. Um, uh, but it, it, we're still, but when we became a cathedral, we still remained a parish. That's where we're the cathedral church of the Advent. And so I'm also the rector, which means I have tenure, which means because in a lot of cathedrals, the bishop is the rector and the dean just kind of runs it for him. But I'm the dean and the rector. So actually the bishop can't even come over here without me inviting him. Um, I say here, he normally is right here, but over there. Um, uh, so, uh, but because we are the cathedral, it does mean that there are certain pressures and expectations on us um, sometimes that that uh, I don't I don't like. But I mean, I, I don't think it's it sort of the, the sum of a lot of what we're saying. <laughs> There's a lot to to be distracted by in Anglicanism, but I'd say that's probably true of a lot of denominations, you know. Um, but getting trying to get beyond what's immediately apparent on the surface and what's at the heart of the matter, which is those like five things that you listed off, about, you know, authority of scripture, um, heart conversion, um, those types of things. That That's really important. It's unfortunate that, um, as Philip Johnson said, our rain shelter yeah. can, can yeah, that dis distract people. And uh, whatnot. at the same time, how do we therefore value it um, and not turn it into an idol, yeah. you know? But Ginger, I would say to your point, I mean, you actually can tell, I mean, uh, most people call, you know, where do you go to church? And they say, I go to the Advent. And when when people say the cathedral, kind of the needle goes off the record for me. And I just all of a sudden my antenna go up uh, because most of us don't think of ourselves as the cathedral, even though we technically are. We think of ourselves as 
the Advent, which if you didn't grow up in, even in Anglicanism, when you say I go to the Advent, that sounds like, so do you sacrifice chickens? Like, I mean, <laughs> like, like it sounds weird, like the Advent. Well, somebody uh, said, thought I was saying I was a Seventh-day Adventist when I said that's that. That's right. Well, you day. are vegetarian. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, so I would say that, but that what, that's one of the things, too, is the Advent has all, and the Lenten preaching series has helped with this. Because um, we, we certainly are Anglicans, we're, we're Episcopalians, uh, but, but that we would see ourselves uh, much more broadly. And so for, what, 106, 107 years now, we've had Lenten preaching uh, at the Advent. Uh, and we have preachers from all kinds of different backgrounds and denominations, and you all are a testimony to this, uh, that we're picking them not based on what denomination they're a part of, but, but the common core convictions that we hold, they hold. Uh, and um, and most of you are, are probably here, uh, maybe there are exceptions, who are here not because um, uh, I just think the Episcopal Church is the, the bee's knees, but you're here because of the Advent um, and, and, and what the Advent is doing. It's not so much what the shingle says out front, but what's happening inside that, that I think attracts people uh, to the Advent. And yet I'm very happy to make hay off of people who, who are coming from Episcopal backgrounds yeah. and want to come to the cathedral. Well, that, so what you just said, I think, circles back to what you originally said about um, gathering. Um, the, our liturgy is really about the people gathered and um, giving us a form with which to gather and worship. I hope, like, leaving this class, this series that we've done together, that that is something you take with you. Is this uh, uh, The idea of church is the body of Christ in a community, uh, and that primarily we're here um, for the sake of each other, encouraging each other with the gospel in a world that is really discouraging. Um, but we're not here primarily to like genuflect and cross ourselves, and all those things can be pretty, but we're here because of the message and the people. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that that was at the core of what Cranmer and other people at the beginning of Anglicanism were trying to accomplish. Um, we've, we've run out of time. Uh, if somebody wanted to learn more about uh, this stuff, Anglicanism, is there a, one book maybe you'd highly recommend? Um, the Bible. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would, uh, I think, I, I mean, it, again, if anyone thinks like you people are crazy, um, Paul Zoll, it was two deans ago, wrote a book called The Protestant Face of Anglicanism, and that's, that's a very good book. Um, there is a book by a guy named Broughton Knox, K-N-O-X, uh, on the 39 articles that's very good. Uh, but if you wanted something that you could actually read on the beach, it's an easy read, it's great. Uh, a book by the former bishop of Central Florida, um, John Howe, called, um, I think it's just called Anglicanism. Anglican. Well, that's Stephen Hill's Anglicanism. Uh, no, what's, what's the and Anyway, John Howe, it's in, that's in the bookstore. And, um, and, and that's a really good introduction to what Anglicanism is all about. Yeah. Would you pray for us as we head out? Yes, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for uh, your church and that uh, you've gathered your people together around your word. And Lord, uh, for bringing people from all kinds of different backgrounds to the Advent, Lord, it is a beautiful thing. Um, and Lord, for um, our different stories and, and how that uh, contributes to the ministry here. Uh, Lord, for those in this room uh, who have been longtime Adventers, I uh, give you thanks for them. And Lord, for those who have just started and are still just trying to figure out whether this is the place to land, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would lead them uh, where you want them to go. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. 
If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.